0: Hi, I'm Talia Baroncelli, and you're watching TheAnalysis.News. I'll shortly be joined by Trita Parsi to speak about a potential unwritten deal between the U.S. and Iran. If you enjoy this content, please go to our website, TheAnalysis.News, hit the Donate button at the top right corner of the screen, and also get onto our mailing list, that way you're notified every time there's a new episode. You can also go to our YouTube channel, TheAnalysis-News, Hit the bell, that way you'll be notified whenever a new episode is published, and like and subscribe to the channel. See you in a bit with Trita Parsi. Mm -hmm. Joining me now is Trita Parsi. He is the Executive Vice President at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Thank you so much for joining me again, Trita.
1: Thank you for having me. It's great to be back with you.
0: Great to have you. So Iran and the U.S. are reportedly negotiating an unwritten deal which would unfreeze at least $7 billion worth of Iranian assets in exchange for the release of U.S. prisoners. Iran would also have to commit to uh, stopping uranium enrichment beyond 60%. So what else is at stake here?
1: Well, what's at stake here is that for the last almost two years now, there's been um growing escalation on both sides. The Iranians have been uh, enriched uranium at higher levels. They've gone above 60% as well. that seems to have not been necessarily deliberate but nevertheless uh, amassed a tremendous amount of enrichment, which means that if they decide to make a bomb, they will have the material in just a few days whereas as long as the JcpoA was in place, it was a minimal one year before they even would have the material. forget about having the bomb. Um, and to a certain extent, As long as the escalation was not too fast, too aggressive, there was some sort of a very uncomfortable, but nevertheless stable status quo. I call it the zombie state in the sense that the JCPA was not really alive, but no one dared to declare it dead because the minute you say it's dead, then you have a crisis. If you pretend it's alive, then you can pretend as if you don't have a crisis. But that only works as long as the escalation is not too aggressive. We were reaching a point in which it was becoming increasingly difficult to sustain that status quo. You saw the United States was uh, essentially piracy, taking Iranian ships or ships with Iranian oil uh, on the high seas, saying that they're circumventing American sanctions. Well, American sanctions are American sanctions. They don't apply to international waters. It's a different thing if there was a UN Security Council resolution behind this, but there isn't. So the Iranians started retaliating by taking ships that either were associated with the U.S. In one case, I think the ship was actually taking oil to um, uh, uh, Houston. Uh, and this is getting very tense. And then we got tense situation in Syria in which militias aligned with Iran were attacking American bases. At one point, they killed one American contractor. I mean, it was really risking a major um, uh, military confrontation. So... Under those circumstances, the, the two sides slowly, carefully started talking directly again, but they can't go for um, a formal agreement for political reasons. On the American side, they want a bigger agreement, um, but they were willing to go with a JCPA with the amendments, but the Iranians said no to that. It's a specific proposal in August. That same draft right now, the Iranians wanted, but the U.S. and the Europeans are saying no to their own draft because they rightfully point out that the circumstances on the ground have changed. Iran has escalated this nuclear program since August of last year. So that's on that thing. The Americans would be okay with a smaller deal, which means that they would you know, do some sort of a freeze formally. The Iranians will not go for that because they see that as devaluing their leverage it would um, essentially mean that they would give up a lot of their leverage, but they actually won't get real sanctions, really. So then uh, the solution to this, and also there's another aspect on the American side, which is any agreement uh, formal, centered on the New York deal, would kick in what is called a NARA. It's a law in the United States that says that anything of that kind has to go to Congress. Congress doesn't have to approve it, they just have to fail to disapprove it. But that's a huge fight in Congress, it would take a lot of political capital. And the White House is not really in the moods for that. Most of their allies on Capitol Hill, the Democrats, are also not in the moods for it. So it seems like an informal agreement, one that can be smaller than the JCPA without um, activating the concern the Iranians have of devaluing their leverage. And at the same time, avoid a congressional battle. Is the most that can be achieved at this point because of a lack of political will on both sides and uh, and at the same time, sufficient to make sure that this status quo that was starting to be destabilized can be stabilized again. It doesn't resolve anything, but perhaps there can be another year and a half or whatever in which we won't see a very dangerous escalation
0: Well, since 2018, when the U.S. withdrew from the JCPOA, there hasn't been much progress on this front, and especially since September 2022. But I do feel like an unwritten agreement and an informal interim deal would be cause for celebration. My only concern or one of my concerns would be, how do you enforce such a deal? In international law, you know, there are certain regulations and standards that need to be upheld. The U.S. did not uphold their part of the bargain when they withdrew from the deal. So how do you manage or enforce such an unwritten agreement?
1: It's a great question, and that's one of the main problems and one of the reasons why these type of informal understandings are not necessarily terribly common, because the enforcement, uh, the ability to trust it is very limited. But again, it comes down to political will. If you want all of those things, the enforcement guarantee, etc. then you have to go for a bigger deal. And at this point, there's no bigger deal that the two sides seem to be able to agree on. But there can be a smaller informal deal that they can agree on. Potentially, it's not done yet. And that can prevent an escalation. If any one of them violates it, well, then it does fall apart. And then they're back to where they are right now, if not a worse situation. But the difference is that with the JCPOA, The U.S. could cheat, the U.S. could betray it, the U.S. could walk out of it, and the only sides that actually would be paying a price for it was mainly Iran and then all of the others. I mean, the Europeans lost a lot of business when the U.S. pulled out of the agreement. The U.S. itself hardly paid a cost. So it was very asymmetric in that sense. This informal agreement is more symmetric in the sense that you withdraw, you pay a price, the other side pays a price. But it's not such that, for instance, on the Iranian side, they would have given up a significant amount of leverage, or the US—they're not going to spend any political capital on this. They're not going to lift any sanctions, etc. So neither side uh, would be, you know, in the red in that sense. But you're absolutely right. The only thing that keeps this together is the confidence that both of them actually want to avoid a crisis, a direct crisis. That's the only thing that keeps it together. There's no other mechanism.
0: And how much of this is actually influenced by this view toward the 2024 presidential elections? Is this the White House or, you know, White House diplomats setting up this deal? Or is Biden in any way, shape or form behind this?
1: I think it actually goes both ways. The, the, first of all, the, the elections are definitely a big part of this. I mean, there's a reason why they want to, they just want to have calm or on the front for the next year and a half months. Um, They're too busy with Ukraine, secondly, with Taiwan. They don't have bandwidth for Iran. Anything with Iran is very domestically, politically costly. So if you actually get something, you have to go to Congress, etc. No U.S. politician would like to have to deal with an Iran issue in an election year. Same thing on the Iranian side. Iranians have been told over and over again by the United States that the Biden administration cannot guarantee what the next president of the United States does, right? So any agreement that would cause the Iranians to give up significant leverage or sanctions relief, well, if the next president comes in a year and a half from now and uh, reverses it just like Trump did, and the Iranians have made a huge loss. So it seems like the Iranians, too, are coming to the belief that perhaps... Better not to have anything right now, because who knows who the president is going to be in 2024. But at the same time, definitely better not to have a crisis either. I mean, the Iranians need to have um, a degree of calm on the U.S. Iran front in order to be able to proceed with a regional detour that they're having with Saudi Arabia and the regional states. There's a limit to how far they can go with that unless tensions between the U.S. and Iran comes down. So they have an incentive to make sure that this happens, not a full deal, but making sure that there's no crisis.
0: The Europeans were very much involved in the JCPOA, in the negotiations of the JCPOA, and I haven't really seen them be present in negotiating this unwritten deal or even saying anything which would try to calm the waters. They've been a bit more adversarial towards Iran what is going on there?
1: The Europeans are not playing any significant role in this. That's absolutely clear. In fact, Europe has lost a tremendous amount of uh, leverage vis-a-vis the United States. Europe is so dependent on the United States uh, today after Ukraine. Uh, And it's in the process of making itself even more dependent on the United States. The Failure of the Europeans in earlier rounds were that when Trump pulled out, the Europeans were not strong enough to be able to pursue an independent policy. They objected to Trump, but they abided by every sanction that he imposed, even though they said that those sanctions were illegitimate and illegal. Back then, there were talks, the Germans were talking about, even they were talking about a degree of autonomy from the United States, being able to do things on their own instead of being so dependent. Now they're actively, uh, as ECFR put it in a tinfoil in an article they published yesterday, uh, in the process of self-vacillation, self-vacilla- uh, uh, they're turning themselves into actively a vassal of the United States. At the same time, they are losing significant influence in the Middle East. Uh, their ability to deliver the U.S. from the Iranian perspective is more or less gone. How the Europeans handled the protest in iran is something of course that the iranians are now in some ways retaliating against the europeans uh, on um and it has further reduced their role. and so what you're seeing is that it's actually regional powers that are at the center of these mediation efforts qatar oman are playing a very important role in all of this and then of course china has come in and played a significant role in the saudi iranian so um In many ways, I think one can say, ultimately, this movement towards stability, resolution of conflicts are good for the Europeans as well. But it is at the same time happening within the process of Europe losing significant uh, influence
0: here. Well, unlike the Europeans, the Chinese have been filling this diplomatic vacuum left behind by the Americans. How does the US see China's success Diplomatic success in the region. Do they view it more as being at odds with their interests in the region, or perhaps being a boon because they've just failed recently at trying to um, make any negotiations actually be successful?
1: So uh, I think it's a great question, and I think there's several several layers to this. The initial reaction of the United States was not a particularly uh, up, you know, cheerful one. Um, they were, first of all, taken completely by surprise, even though the Chinese, within 24 hours, came to the White House and briefed the White House on what had happened in uh, and showed complete transparency. Uh, they're not, they were not briefing the U.S. in the midst of the talks, but that's rather normal. Um, you know, For that to work, you need to first make sure that it's, it's completed. In fact, take a look at this. The United States has been having some conversations with the um, uh, Iranians through the Omanis and the Qataris. The Chinese have not been briefed on that. Now, of course, it's not led to completion, but that's my point. Upon the point of completion, there's no, there cannot be any real expectation of that. In fact, to the best of my knowledge, the U.S. has not fully briefed the Europeans either. And in 2012 and 13, when the U.S. and Iran negotiated secretly in Oman, um, Europeans knew nothing about it. And once they found out, they were actually very, very upset. And one can be upset at the United States for it. But had the United States shared that information, there's also significant likelihood that they would never have been able to be successful. So at first it was negative. And, and because of the optics, the optics are problematic for the United States because it shows that the U.S. is no longer in indispensable power in the Middle East. Um, it showed that the Saudis were very pleased to kind of snub the American side to um, yeah. essentially uh, yeah, humiliate the United States a little bit. But if you take a look at it in the sense of the policy outcome, I think there's positives and negatives. The positives are overwhelming in my view. If you have a greater stability in the region, it reduces the security burden on the United States. It actually helps the United States leave the region militarily, which is what presidents have said over and over again that they want to do, and it's certainly what the American public wants to do. It is not helpful to the U.S.'s Iran policy currently, because if the policy is to um, pressure Iran and tighten sanctions and isolate it, well, then having a normalization between Saudi Arabia and Iran through China is a clear, clear, count against any success in isolating and containing Iran. But in my view, that was not going to be successful anyways. The United States has tried to contain Iran for 40 years. It's not worked. It's only made matters worse. So uh, I would still put it as an invalid negative point. It's mostly the optics. And here I think the calculation on the American side has been highly problematic because it was constantly this fear that the Chinese were going to come in and fill the military vacuum if the United States left the region military. That's not what they did. They didn't bribe the Saudis and Iranians with arms deals and ask them to, you know, open military bases on their territory or offer security guarantees, all the stuff that the US always does. Instead, they came in and they helped facilitate and they are acting as the guarantors of this deal and they filled the diplomatic vacuum that the United States had left because of its militarized foreign policy. That's where the Chinese were coming in. And we weren't even looking at that space because we we thought that they had no interest in playing that role.
0: Well, you say that the U.S.'s policy over the past 40 years towards Iran has been unsuccessful. And I wonder if the the Carter doctrine, though Jimmy Carter was the, the president of the U.S. Um, during the Iranian revolution in 79, and I guess it was maybe in 1980 where he proclaimed... The Carter Doctrine, meaning that the U.S. would, um, you know, be very interested in defending their military interests in, in the Persian Gulf and in the region. So I wonder if this unwritten deal, if it doesn't actually um, contribute to de-escalation and if there is some sort of military conflict with Iran, if this would reinforce that Carter Doctrine or where does that stand?
1: Well, no, I first of all, um... It is not clear that it is a military benefit for the United States in terms of a conflict with Iran by having so many bases in the region, because that means that there would be targets that the Iranians could attack. And the Iranians have the capacity through missiles, thousands of them to rain down on all of these different bases. If the United States were to have an uh, off the horizon, over the horizon posture in which it would have military assets out in the seas, but the ability to move them in, it would still be able to take on Iran militarily—not a full-scale invasion, perhaps—but without the Iranians having the same ability to retaliate. So, if the if the point actually is that Iran is the threat and there's a a, a build-up for that, it's not clear to me that it actually makes much sense to have all of these bases that the Iranians easily can can target. I think the dark doc, uh, Carter doctrine and, and and the Reagan doctrine. The essence of it was that the United States would not allow any other power, external or internal, gain hegemony in the region or disrupt the workflows. flows. Uh, to a certain extent, some of that essence is still there. That doesn't necessarily mean, however, that the United States needs to have constant military presence in the Middle East. When Carter Doctrine was Put in place, the U.S. didn't have bases in the Middle East. In fact, most of the bases that the United States have in the Middle East are coming after the mid 1990s, and even more so after 2003. We're sometimes talking about this as if the United States has had military bases in the region, you know, uh, throughout all of its history. It's absolutely not the case. When these things were put in place, even when it was revived or revised and extended by President Reagan, the U.S. still did not have anything near the military presence that it currently.
0: Well, why don't we speak about Israel, because Israel is obviously a huge player and has obviously you know, always been opposed to the JCPOA and to any sort of rapprochement or agreement between the U.S. and Iran. Um, President, um, sorry, Prime Minister uh, Bibi Netanyahu has been under a lot of pressure recently with all the different investigations into bribery and corruption, and he hasn't really been able to actually visit the U.S. on any sort of official um, means or, or purposes, but what is his stance toward the development of an unwritten deal with between Iran and the US?
1: Netanyahu is completely opposed to it. Although, and I think you know, key reason as to why we even know about this taking place right now is because um, the Israelis leak this information, and they leaked it for the with the purpose of sabotaging. It. And Israelis have been leaking a lot of different things about these negotiations throughout the years for the purpose of sabotaging it. In fact, there was a moment during the negotiations of the JCPOA in which the American side were briefing the Israelis, even before the negotiators returned to Washington, D.C. Then U.S. intelligence picked up that these Israelis were actively manipulating that information and leaking it in a selective, strategic way to sabotage the talks. And that's when the U.S. side stopped those briefings. And there was a report now that the that Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, talked to the Israelis and were very upset that they had leaked. It's, it's, so a mystery to me as to why the administration wants to share this type of information so generously with the Israelis when the, when the um, pattern of leaking is so clear, so extensive. Uh, but the Israelis are opposed to this. But the problem with the Israelis is that they're opposed to the JCPOA. They're opposed to a bigger JCPOA. They're opposed to a smaller JCPOA. They're opposed to an uh, unwritten JCPOA. And they're opposed to having no deal at all. So it's not really clear what on earth they're in favor of except war, I guess. Uh, So at some point, it's a mystery to me, again, why the Biden administration has not figured out by yet that if they want a nuclear deal with Iran, they're going to have to have some level of managed unhappiness in Israel. There's no way around this. If they're trying to please the Israelis and still get a JCPA, then they're going to be exactly in the situation they are in right now in which they haven't either.
0: So one of the priorities of Supreme Leader Khamenei, as well as President Raisi, has been sanctions relief. And as part of these um, unwritten deal negotiations, they've been trying to get Iranian assets unfrozen. So $7 billion worth of Iranian assets. I was wondering if these assets could benefit the Iranian people or if they would just get siphoned off to the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps or potentially to other elite in the country?
1: So first of all, as as this deal is structured, the money would actually not go back to Iran. It is Iran's money, but it wouldn't go back to Iran. It would stay in a couple of banks and the Iranians would be able to use that money to buy food and medicine. The argument that is being used that, oh, if you give them more money, um, it would be used for wrong things, bad things. There's a certain element of truth in that, in the sense that some of the stuff that the Iranian government would buy is probably not particularly good, probably not to the benefit of the Iranian people. But if you let that be the guiding star of how you do policy, it means you actually have to starve the entire country, because you have to starve all of them until you manage to get to the political elite. And that's what we've done in cuba in venezuela in iraq it never works you make a population absolutely miserable for the sake of not making sure that the regime makes it miserable you're making it miserable instead Uh, and these regimes tend to survive they tend to become worse and the repression tends to become worse and it's part of the problem of trying to approach these things solely from some sort of a misguided moral dimension or direction it ends up actually backfiring tremendously we know that once the JCPOA took place, um, according to US intelligence monitoring how the Iranians were using money, the vast majority of the money that the Iranians made during those short two and a half years that the JCPOA was uh, being uh, implemented actually went back to internal investments and rebuilding of the country. And this is what the US intelligence testified twice in the US Senate. But facts are not particularly exciting throwing out all kinds of misinformation, however, tends to be far more effective.
0: Well, one last final question. Do you think that if this unwritten deal is you know, successful and the money goes back to the Iranian people that we'll see more protests on the part of Iranians in the future because they'll actually have you know, the, the, the money to maybe even stop working and to, to go out on the streets, some form of general strike?
1: Well, $7 billion is not gonna create that situation but it's going to take a step in that direction because if you actually had significant improvement of the economy and a strengthening of society vis-a-vis the state and uh, a greater desire to not just be so focused on economic uh, circumstances but also your political rights then that is a trend that we have seen that's where countries are moving um uh, towards seeking greater political openness but when you're starving and um, you are fighting day-to-day to, day to just make ends meet, political rights is not your priority. And, and, and that pattern has been very clear in Iran as well. The economic pressure that sanctions brings about increases the likelihood of protests. It may also increase the frequency of protests, but it also dramatically reduces the likelihood of success in the protests. Because to be able to change things such as, given women in Iran you know, their basic human rights on these issues, that's not a three-month fight. That's a lengthy fight. And pe- populations that are starving and that are such short, uh, uh, limited margins economically cannot sustain that fight. They need to have some degree of economic well-being to be able to sustain that fight. That's one aspect. When it comes to other things with the protests, you know, lack of leadership and things of that nature also were, of course, huge challenges that they did not manage to truly overcome. But I I was fascinated to see, I heard it myself from people, but fascinated to see, I think it was Wall Street Journal that quoted one person who said, I'm still angry. I still want to protest, but I also cannot risk being killed because my family will starve." You cannot expect you cannot expect. Um, so again, it's there. There is a desire in some elements just to punish Iran. The fact that it punishes the rest of the population, they either cognitively just you know manage to ignore or they um, justify one way or another. But in reality, you have almost no examples in history in which a strategy like this has been successful in a country with a specific context that Iran has.
0: Well, we can't ignore the realities on the ground and how the brutal sanctions and U.S. policy towards Iran have shaped Iranian society and socioeconomic issues. Thank you so much, Shrita, for joining the analysis. Thank you so much. Very pleasure being with you. It was great to have you. And thank you for watching theanalysis.news. If you're able to donate to this show, please go to theanalysis.news and hit, hit the donate button at the top right corner of the screen. You can also get onto our mailing list and subscribe and like our YouTube channel, The Analysis News. See you next time.